Let me take you back to the fall of 2015. My guest on the podcast today had just arrived at Yale. He was an Air Force veteran, working class, a former foster child. So when a massive campus crisis erupted over emails about Halloween costumes, he was a bit perplexed. Rob Henderson is a PhD student in psychology at Cambridge University and a rising academic star. He writes a popular newsletter on human nature, psychology, and social class at Substack, and has been published in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. He's also just written his first book, which is out later this year. But he's perhaps most famous for coining the term luxury beliefs. You know, in the past, the elites, they demonstrated their upper-class status through luxury goods, through their dress and appearance, and my claim is that today, now people do it through their luxury beliefs. So these are sort of unusual or novel or bizarre ideas that are often at odds with conventional opinion. And what seems to happen is that if there's a belief that's widely held by ordinary people, like marriage is probably a good thing and it's probably good stability for children is probably a good thing, then a way to distinguish yourself as a member of the upper class is to hold a belief that's against that. Rob Henderson is here to talk about luxury beliefs, the sex recession, and the state of the mating game. That's today on Lean Out. Rob, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks, Tara. It's great to be here. So nice to have you on. I'm really excited to speak with you about your concept of luxury beliefs, which I discovered about a year ago, and it is one of the single most helpful ideas I've come across for understanding the moment that we're in. But before we get to that, I'd like to talk a bit about your background, how it's informed your thinking and your scholarship. Give us a bit of a snapshot of your backstory. Sure. So, well, right now I'm in my final year of my PhD here at Cambridge in England. Before this, I was, I did my undergrad at Yale studying psychology there as well. But before I entered these universities, my life was a lot different. So backing up to the beginning, I was born into poverty to my mother who was addicted to drugs. I never knew my father and neither did she. So as a result of my mother's addiction, I was placed into foster care when I was three years old. So we were in Los Angeles, you know, I bounced around different foster homes until just a couple of months before my eighth birthday. I lived in seven different homes and I was adopted by this family and we settled in a sort of a dusty working class town in Northern California called Red Bluff. At that point, so my adoptive father was a truck driver and my adoptive mother was an assistant social worker, although she'd had a couple of jobs before that. So, you know, I had a mother and a father and my younger sister, my adoptive sister, who was their biological daughter. And so I had this kind of stable family for a couple of years, but then my adoptive parents divorced and my adoptive father, who was angry at my adoptive mother for leaving him, subsequently severed ties with me as a way to get revenge on her. And this was really, this was really heartbreaking for me. I was by this point, nine years old. And after never knowing my father and then living in all those foster homes and then being abandoned by my adoptive father. I took this really hard. My adoptive mother, uh, we moved into a duplex in this kind of rundown part of Red Bluff. And I would watch my sister go off to stay with her dad every other week and I couldn't go. And 
know, this was just really hard. So from that point, I was nine. I was getting involved in all kinds of mischief and trouble with my friends. I was you know, smoking weed, smoking cigarettes, taking pills. Uh, you know, I wrote a story in the New York Post about how my friend and I uh, caught one of other friends' houses on fire vandalizing buildings, fighting. I mean, it got really bad. And then later, you know, once once we got a little bit older, drinking and driving and just all kinds of recklessness. You know, there's there's a lot more to this story, but you know, I'll just fast forward a little bit. I was when I was 17, I was about to graduate from high school and I knew I wasn't going anywhere in my life. It was just, uh, you know, I was seeing the trajectory that I was on was not good. So on the advice of a couple of different people, including one of my high school teachers, I decided to enlist. So uh, yeah, I joined the Air Force and you know, spent a, a few years serving and that helped me to you know, redirect my life trajectory. And that's how I sort of ended up going to college on the GI Bill and landed where I am today. That's the, the very short version of my life. Well, it's quite a story. And I, I know that you're writing a book as well, which I'm really looking forward to reading when it comes out. Yeah, yeah, the book is, uh, it'll come out later this year, probably late in the year, in which I, I do a much more sort of in-depth discussion and exploration of, of everything that I went through, anecdotes and stories and my reflections and and what I take all of this to mean. And, and, and I offer some sort of social and cultural commentary as well. Mm. And I want to talk about the moment that you arrive at Yale. It's 2015. The tide is just starting to turn in terms of what's happening on elite campuses. There were explosive protests that fall over the Erica Christakis Halloween email. Tell people what that controversy was about and how you digested that, given the story that you just told us about, you know, where you were coming from. It was bewildering. I mean, this is 2015. I uh, was discharged from the military in August. I started class at Yale my first semester in September. And then in October, that sort of infamous Halloween email came out, you know, by Erica Christakis, who at that point was the, she was on the faculty. She was an associate master at Sylvan College. Her husband, Nicholas, was a, he was the master of the college at the time. He was also a professor. And so, yeah, that email came out and it sparked this very intense student eruption and all these protests and calling for the Christakis to be fired and calling her bigot and a racist and, and you know, how the, the university in general was somehow responsible for these students feeling unsafe and so on. And I was just totally confused by all of it. I just couldn't understand, you know, how students, many or most of whom were affluent from well-to-do backgrounds, well-to-do families, they said that this email made them feel unsafe or that it put them in danger or harmed them in some way when words like danger and safety and all these kinds of, I mean, that, that just meant something different to me when I was living in foster homes and, and when I was in the military, like just the vocabulary that they were using and I know, just the energy around this was was confusing to me. And I would ask questions about like what was so offensive about this email and students would respond with vitriol, just the fact that I would even ask the question. And even when I would explain, you know, my background, they would still like it just they would just shut down like they wouldn't accept that someone couldn't understand the moral transgression that had occurred. You know, there was one female student who said I was too privileged to understand what was going on there and why that email was so hurtful. Wow. You know, this was a person who, you know, her, her family is from very wealthy zip code in the U.S. And, and she went to Exeter, which is like a very expensive private school. 
And and so for her to tell me that I was the one who was privileged was um, it took me a while to understand the sort of intellectual acrobatics involved in her saying something like that. At the time, I just didn't get it at all. And I just walked away just confused. Now I think I can at least try to like reformulate or like reconstruct, like just give a sort of a charitable interpretation of what she meant by that. But yeah, it was uh, just the whole experience was perplexing for me. And it really left a bad taste in my mouth. And yeah, that was my introduction to elite campus culture. And it's sort of lingered and remained ever since. It was it was by far my the most formative experience I had at Yale, more than any classes or any readings or any other interactions or experiences was those few weeks on campus, just the sort of the fervor that had taken hold. Mm. And this sort of great awakening that we've been watching unfold. I mean, one of the things that I find so bizarre about it from a class perspective is that, you know, in these elite spaces, you see this sort of complete ignoring or erasure of the workers. So I wondered if you saw that on campus too, that, you know, there's this saying, we care so much about the marginalized and yet the people who are working in poor conditions in these actual institutions don't rank, don't merit at all. Did you see any of that? Oh, I mean, I saw that. I saw, yeah, different versions of that. I mean, of course, the workers were totally overlooked. So Yale is in New Haven, which is a a very poor, disproportionately Black city. And the students didn't seem to care at all about what was going on outside of the student body and the faculty and so on. You know, of course, they, they would champion for their own interests or for the interests on behalf of the faculty for more representation or whatever. But when it came to the workers on campus, they were just totally overlooked and then off campus, too. So I had an apartment in downtown New Haven and I in order to get there, you know, I'd, I'd walk to and from my apartment to class. And I had to walk through a lot of poverty and addiction and homelessness and mental illness. And I mean, it was, it was very sobering to, to see that. And, you know, I'd walk through there and just have these sort of memories of like living in a car with my mom when I was a little kid and watching her shoot up and get high. And then like seeing the same thing happen on these benches in parks in New Haven. And, you know, then I'd look at this campus and I'd sort of walk, make my way through that and then see the university and, and just like how fortunate the inhabitants were. And yet they all seemed to feel beleaguered or put upon in some way. Like, I mean, even small things irritated me, like the student income contribution. You know, at first I had no idea what this was. I was, I was just lucky or whatever, but I mean, I, I was there at the GI Bill, so I didn't have to worry about tuition. You know, the students, the student income contribution, some of them I apparently had to work like 10 hours a week or something if they were on some kind of like a student tuition program and they would complain about this. And, you know, it was, it was like 10 hours a week working in a library or helping to serve food in a dining hall. Like most college students around the U.S. have to work part time. My sister went to college in California. She went to a local state university and she worked part time in a coffee shop. And that like mm. it never occurred to me or to her that this was like a problem that she had to supplement <laughs> her income to work part time. But these students were like, you know, how dare you make me you know, do all this? And I was thinking to myself, like, why is this a problem? And then, you know, every once in a while, they pay lip service to the dining hall workers or to the staff at the university and say how how great they were, what a good job they were doing and so on. And they would all like if you ask them point blank, like, is there anything wrong with doing this kind of work or is it respectable work, you know, and so on? They would say like, oh, yeah, of course, it's great. But then like they would feel this like the, the impression I got was that they felt this intense humiliation at having to do any of this kind of work themselves as part of their income contribution. You know, like the fact that they would have to serve food with these people who weren't students like them or something. Uh, to me, it was very there was like a sort of duplicitous quality to it. And like the more I saw it, the more sort of repulsed I became. Mm. I want to ask you a little bit about that moving between the two worlds. Because I've been a journalist 20 years. I've interviewed a lot of people at this point. 
very few people actually have that experience of moving between those two poles. I saw it a lot actually in the first six years of my career when I interviewed rappers who would come from really tough neighborhoods and then find themselves in these incredibly expensive hotels and fine dining and just the sort of mind bend that it takes to move from one. And I'm very curious about that experience and how that shapes you and how you think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. So a lot of social scientists, they seem to be like, they, they study poverty or working class communities or something as though they're like anthropologists or like Martians, like who, you know, going into this other world and trying to understand it and the culture and the habits and stuff. And they seldom turn those tools of analysis around on themselves mm. to understand elite culture and their own sort of habits and customs and mores. And I wasn't consciously doing this at the time from any sort of uh, systematic, social, scientific, academic way. I was just a student on campus and I would observe these things and recognize like, oh, yeah, there's different vocabulary here or the way that people speak. And it was a difficult adjustment at first because students and, and professors too, like they, they don't dress that differently than people from any other college campus. And in fact, there's a kind of, I think there's like a soft taboo around displaying, uh, ostentatiously displaying wealth in some way through your appearance. And so I was unaware that these students were as well off as they actually were. I mean, if you actually look at the data about what kind of student attends Ivy League schools, or the kind of families they're from, let's say it's unreal. I mean, I, I was sort of aware like, oh, yeah, of course, this is a rich school with probably some number of rich kids. But I had no idea the level until I actually started digging into the data. But there were small examples of me, what, like making these sort of social faux pas or whatever. I mean, I think my, my second semester, I think I, I joined or I tried to join anyway, this, uh, this, this humor magazine on campus. And we were brainstorming headlines for that month's issue. Uh, and the theme of the issue was, was puberty. So we had to come up with humorous headlines about puberty and then come up with some kind of short article. And I, I came up with some kind of, what was the headline? Like area male uh, discovers porn gold mine in his front right pocket. And it was just this kind of like brainstorming. And I was just tossing this idea out there. And the student editor looked at me and he raised an eyebrow and he was like, well, why does it have to be gendered? And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, area male, you know, I'm like, uh, okay. And then, you know, kind of dropped it and changed subject or whatever. But, you know, that lingered with me. I walked away from there and I was like, why does it have to be gendered? Like, what does gendered mean? I knew what gender was, but I'd never heard it used, you know, in that way as, a, as, as an adjective, a gendered, like, what is that? And of course, just through being there over time, I learned what that word meant. But little things like that would happen repeatedly. And I was like realizing, oh, this is uh, this is a different world. And even though there's no like in the military, they like explicitly tell you, they give you like a guidebook up front when you're in basic training, you have to memorize certain things and you become indoctrinated in the culture in that way. It's not like that at elite universities. You have to take it up through osmosis mm. and through just sort of being ensconced in that environment. And most of these students had been in similar environments their entire lives. You know, many or most of them were, you know, they went to private schools and had been around people just like themselves, basically, you know, since birth. Yeah, so it was a it was definitely a period of adjustment, and and even to this day, I'm sure that I make these sort of subtle errors and stuff. But you know, I do very much look at it and and try to learn it and try to I guess um to understand it and realize like you know it, it's it really is a different culture. Mm-hmm. And speaking of which, let's let's talk now about luxury beliefs. So, what is that idea for our listeners? So I define luxury beliefs as ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes, and so. You know, I'll give an example of this. 
when a couple of years ago now, I was having this conversation with a former classmate of mine from Yale saying, you know, I think monogamy and marriage are like outdated, kind of like we need to move on. We need to evolve beyond this. And these were these sort of oppressive patriarchal institutions. And I'm like, what? Okay. So then I, I asked her, so how were you raised? How did you grow up? And she said, well, you know, I was raised by mom and a dad and this kind of, you know, typical conventional family. And then I asked, well, what do you plan to do? Like when you, you're going to be very successful in your career and so on, but eventually like, do you want, like, what do you want to do in terms of your relationship? And she said, you know, well, I'll probably get married and have some kids and kind of do what my parents did. And I asked her, well, then like, what, what are you talking about? Like, why would you want to adhere to this patriarchal institution or custom or whatever? And she's like, well, what I, what I mean is that in general for society, I think it's outdated. It's just, it, it shouldn't have to be for everyone was her point. So on the one hand, she's saying like, she, she was raised by married parents in this mm -hmm. stable family. She's going to do it for herself. But then she's cultivating and broadcasting this belief that, oh, but like other people shouldn't do it. And it's kind of outdated and we need to move past it. And there were other examples of this, but generally it seems like, uh, you know, in the past, the elites, they demonstrated their upper class status through luxury goods, through their dress and appearance. And my claim is that today, now people do it through their luxury beliefs. So these are sort of unusual or novel or bizarre ideas that are often at odds with conventional opinion. And what seems to happen is that if there's a belief that's widely held by ordinary people, like marriage is probably a good thing and it's probably good, you know, stability for children is probably a good thing, then a way to distinguish yourself as a member of the upper class is to hold a belief that's against that. And it signals like, oh, no, I'm a, I'm a sophisticated member of the sort of educated class who went to elite schools. You know, there's examples of you know, vocabulary too, like cisgender and heteronormative and engendered, like regular people who work for a living and have, you know, jobs where they can't scroll Twitter all day. They don't have time to sort of learn the, the latest fashionable lexicon and viewpoints and so on of the luxury belief class, as they call them. And so, yeah, this concept was informed by my readings of sort of old school sociology from Pierre Bourdieu and Thorsten Veblen who wrote The Theory of the Leisure Class, which is a very good book. And then uh, more recent research from uh, social psychology uh, over the last five years or so. And it helped me to understand the sort of intense status anxiety I was seeing on campus. So from my perspective, I got there at TL and I was like, I made it. I don't have to worry anymore. You know, I, I, I worked so hard and struggled so much in my life. And now like, I'm probably going to be okay. You know, now that I got here, I finally, but around me, these students were constantly stressed out about getting to law school or medical school or getting that prestigious internship or their dream job. And they were, there was just this sort of restlessness and anxiety. And then, you know, once I started digging into the psychology research and I found that, uh, you know, when psychologists measure who's the most interested in obtaining wealth and status, it's actually the people who have wealth and status. The people who are at the top of society are the ones who are the most preoccupied with obtaining more wealth and, and status and retaining the amount that they already have. You know, so people who have high levels of education and high earnings are the most likely to agree with statements like, you know, it would please me to have a position of power or it's important to me to be an in influential. So that helped me to understand that like, oh, these students who have kind of already made it in a, in a sense, this is why they're so anxious because they're the ones who care the most about it. And because status is no longer displayed or expressed, at least to the same degree as in the past through uh, luxury goods, now they're doing it through these, these unusual and strange luxury beliefs. 
just so interesting. And you can see this throughout the kind of woke movement. I can think of a lot of examples, defund the police being one of them. Defund the police was a huge one. I, I coined that term luxury beliefs in 2019. I had no idea that within a year, like the the most powerful example of a luxury belief would arise within a matter of months. And it was very easy for me to just dig into survey data. Uh, so in, in YouGov, they, they administered a poll asking how supportive Americans were of defunding the police. And they broke it down by income. And the Americans in the highest income category were the most supportive of defunding the police and the people in the lowest income category were the least supportive. And so I thought like, wow, well, of course, like, of course, the people who want to defund the police are, are the wealthiest because they can afford private security and bodyguards and to live in a gated community. And there were even reports of this, you know, like, like wealthy New Yorkers were fleeing to the Hamptons during the summer of 2020 and hiring private bodyguards and security and all of those things. I mean, of course, they can afford to say defund the police. They can afford this luxury belief. But this was an example of inflicting costs on lower classes because rates of violent crime and homicide and burglary and all these things, which disproportionately affect the poor, have, have increased. And so it's actually the poor who are suffering most from this. You know, when people think about crime and, and robbery and blur burglary and so on, they, they, they often view it through the perspective of the perpetrator, which I find fascinating because the victims of those crimes are also disproportionately poor. And because there are way more victims than perpetrators, perpetrators are a small minority of people. The victims are group is much larger than if you're if you don't stop crime, you're actually victimizing the poor. You're actually helping to victimize the poor. So you know, there was um, some data from I think this was from the FBI showing that compared to Americans who earn more than seventy five thousand dollars a year, the poorest Americans are seven times more likely to be victims of burglary, victims of crime, 20 times more likely to be victims of sexual assault and aggravated assault. So yeah, when the norms and around crime and, and police and so on, when, when all of those are withdrawn, then yeah, the poor people are the ones who, who suffer the most. I want to come back to sort of marriage and, and dating and sexuality for a moment. The sort of state of marriage right now, I know you've talked about this quite a bit, the, the data around elite marriages, it has gone from, I think it's like 85% to 75%, but working class marriages completely collapsed. Yeah, it was 95% to, to ah, 85%. Yeah, there we go. Okay. So we know that that is happening. We also know that there is this sex recession happening and that marriage is being delayed. And so when you look at all of those trends and what's happening right now in, in dating, we just saw Christine Emba writing in in the New York Times, this really evocative piece based off her book, Rethinking Sex, saying we have no rules anymore and that this is a problem. So when you hmm. think of all of those trends, what like what is your take on what the status of things between men and women is right now? Okay, so I haven't read that piece. I'm having these sort of like flashbacks. This was another sort of a cultural adjustment that I had to undergo at Yale was people would say, oh, did you read this uh, this op-ed in the New York Times or this thing in the Atlantic? And I didn't keep up with news growing up. Like it, this is very much a class-based thing where like, you know, like my mom doesn't read the Atlantic, you know, like it just wasn't something that we had growing up. Uh, we subscribe to the local newspaper, you know, the Red Bluff Daily News. But yeah, it's like, oh, I didn't read that, that, that op-ed. <laughs> so, but what's going on with... Yeah, it's, it's a tough question. I mean, we're seeing, for example, there was a, an article in the Washington Post showing that rates of sexlessness among young adults has increased. And mm -hmm. for men, it's increased much more than for women. So if I recall correctly, for women, 2008, women under 30 report not having sex in the past year. It was, I think, around 10%. 
And then by 2018, it had increased to around 15%. So a slight increase. But for men, I think it was around 10% as well in 2008, but it had increased to 28% in 2018. So it tripled for men and it increased only slightly for women. And so it seems like men in general, young men are sort of what dropping out of the dating market, out of the marriage market, having a, a more difficult time. Everyone has an opinion about why this is. I mean, because so, so much happened between those years, right? Between 2008 and 2018, you know, it was social media, dating apps, all this stuff, like smartphones, smartphones in general, you know, in 2008, almost no one had a smartphone. And by 2018, everyone had one. And so all of those things are, are intertwined to some degree. But I think dating apps are, are having a, a major role to play here for why there's this sort of asymmetry, but also why in general, uh, rates of sexlessness have climbed. I mean, Dating apps are more used by men than by women. So dating apps are becoming like the number one way that young people are meeting, but it's still more than half of the users are male. And so there are a lot of women who aren't using these apps. And so, yeah, I think there's something going on here, even outside of the apps that's contributing to this sort of rates, growing rates of sexlessness. So about the apps, I've heard you talk about this before. And I, in my lifetime, I've seen it all change drastically. And this sort of collapse of the norms that I grew up with. With the dating apps in particular, I mean, first of all, it's a business. They have a business incentive for you not <laughs> to find you know, a monogamous relationship and get off the apps. That's the first thing. Mm. The second thing is you've talked a lot about how there's a small group of the men doing most of the dating on these apps. And that that is skewing the relationships for the men who are not dating, for the men who are dating a lot, and the women who are dating these men who are dating a lot. So walk me through that because I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So so I've looked at some academic research on the apps, which is it's it's a small but growing field, and it's it's really interesting. So for example, there was a study just recently showing it was two years ago uh, showing that you know the sort of swipe rates on Tinder. So men swipe right or like about 60% of the women's profiles they see. So basically more than half of the women, uh, the average man sees they're going to swipe on it. Whereas for women, they only swipe on about 4% of the male profiles they see. And so this is a sort of a classic principle of evolutionary psychology that women are much more selective in who they're willing to date and enter romantic partnership with than, than men, especially for, for short-term interactions. And so this in the long run is, is creating these strange dynamics where, yeah, small numbers of men are getting tons and tons of matches. I had a friend, he's in a relationship now, but I've talked about this friend before, where he accumulated more than 20,000 matches across the dating apps. And he was a very busy man. And that was like a part-time job for him. So, but then I have other friends who who actually, I mean, it's interesting. They're, they actually aren't super unattractive. I mean, a lot of, this is another thing about the apps is that a lot of it is like your, your ability to take good photos and invest your time. And there's just like a whole strategy around improving your likelihood of, of getting matches on these things. So even though they weren't like that much worse looking or whatever than my friend who was very successful, but they just maybe didn't invest much time, but they would only get a handful of matches a week. And it would slowly trickle in and it wouldn't, you know, just oftentimes wouldn't go well or like the dates flaked out or just, you know, sort of went nowhere. That is the sort of modal male experience on the apps. The average guy on any of the apps is like, you know, just not getting that much attention. And this isn't to say that women are having like the best time of their lives on these apps. I mean, a lot of them are having sort of the opposite problem where they're getting flooded with attention I mean, like I've had female friends who've, they like show me like, look, like, look at all these guys sending me all these horrible messages or being disgusting in some way or whatever. 
And so for them, there's this sort of like filtering problem of how do you know which of these guys is actually worth your time? And to get flooded with all of this, like that presents its own sort of complexities and, and then their own problems too. And often the men, they experience this kind of rejection up front where it's hard for them to get matches. And then once they maybe have a date and the, maybe the girls aren't interested in them or something, but for women, often what seems to happen is like they'll, they will be interested in a guy and maybe they'll sleep with him or have a few good dates with him. And then he just vanishes because guys who have lots of options often will vanish because they have those options, right? And so I think this was part of the whole contentious debate about, did you read about the West Elm Caleb from, no. this was like a few months ago, some guy, I think he was in New York or something, like he was this this handsome guy who was a furniture mover, but he would basically do this. I mean, he would sleep with tons of women and I guess not call them back or something. And then all of these women found each other on TikTok and were like, you know, trying to like cancel him or get him fired or whatever. And they were uh, spurned by him. And, but I mean, that's, that's sort of like what young guys in their twenties do when they have lots of options is they often behave very uh, irresponsibly and in a, like a very cavalier way. And so women who have these kind of negative experiences, I think it's, it's cultivating this hostility on both sides where guys are thinking like, oh, you know, girls don't like me or, you know, whatever the, there's something, the problem maybe with them. And then women will maybe have a couple of negative interactions where a guy will ghost them after a few dates or something. And then they'll say that men are trashed and, you know, men are whatever. And so both sides, you know, after a couple of negative interactions, they draw sweeping generalizations from them. And then I think they kind of withdraw and stop maybe being as interested in going out on dates as a result of this. And I wonder too about the sort of conversation around gender and, and how that plays into it. If, if we're saying that there's no such thing as a man or a woman, how do we talk about the state of things between men and women right now? That gets really tricky. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I think the whole, like, it's weird. Like we, we, no one will explicitly acknowledge, you know, that gender roles are exist and, and, and they certainly want to acknowledge that they're important, but they behave as though they are right. Like uh, in terms of, you know, who's expected to ask who out on a date and who's expected to come up with the, the sort of like the whole, what uh, ritual around dating is still heavily uh, uh, gendered to use a term I, I learned at Yale, but people don't want to acknowledge it. They don't want to talk about it. And I think yeah, a lot of the taboo is maybe related to what you're describing here, where now people don't even want to acknowledge that that gender is something that's real or that exists or or sex is something that that exists now. I mean, it used to be gender. Now we're kind of not acknowledging that sex exists, like biological sex. And I think this is also, yeah, adding to the confusion and the complexities of it. It's such a strange time on so many different fronts. The last thing I wanted to ask you about is, is just about politics and the sort of right-left divide. My own position is that just so much of progressive thinking, which I grew up around, I'm so disillusioned with it at this point for so many different reasons, you know, across society. There's just so many things I don't think are working and that these ideas are failing. And when you look at the sort of scrambling of the left and the right, I mean, right now, in order to talk about things like family formation, which I think is a really, really important thing to talk about, or the issue of class and what it means to be mm. working class, you need to go now to conservative writers for these ideas. What is happening in this kind of scrambling of the left and the right? Mm. What, what's going on? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I was raised by, so my, my adoptive mom, uh, at least for a portion of my childhood, she actually, so she entered a relationship with a woman for a period of my adolescence. And so she and her partner raised me for a few years together and they were working class Democrats. You know, they voted for John Kerry in 2004 and that was sort of their, you know, that was like their po political position. 
but they wouldn't recognize the kind of what progressivism or liberalism on elite college campuses. It's, it's really fun for me to like go home and like show my family terms that I'm learning or videos from campus or, you know, just sort of like what's going on at these elite schools. And, and yeah, my mom just doesn't understand it. My family's just like, what is this? Like what's going on? And, but yeah, as far as like why that's changing, I think there've been like some interesting suggestions in place. I think one actually could be social media where highly educated and affluent people are able to communicate with each other very rapidly and also to accumulate followings. And they became it seems like they became more concerned with impressing one another than with representing their constituency or with carrying out the will of their base, which used to be uh, working class people. But it, yeah, like you said, it's increasingly shifting and there's a sort of realignment going on. The data I saw in 2020 that the like what, like 14 of the 15 poorest counties in the US voted for Trump and like what, like, I don't know, nine out of 10 of the wealthiest ones voted for Biden. And I think this was like the first time this has happened since like the 1980s or something. So very strange thing happening here. So yeah, so so I think, yeah, a lot of the affluent people, they're, they're sort of uh, what broadcasting these beliefs to one another, these luxury beliefs, trying to impress one another, trying to obtain status within their own peer group. And these beliefs sort of morph and spiral into uh, contorted and strange ways that would be unrecognizable to a lot of people who haven't spent a lot of time on elite campuses. Um, that's sort of what I've been thinking, but it's difficult. And it also seems like the Republican or more conservative oriented people are not even in terms of their sort of political philosophy, but just people who are, I guess, what just less, less progressive in their views in some way are being sort of turned off by that. I mean, it, it sort of happened with me. I mean, my, my own views were, I don't know, I guess sort of center, maybe center right when I got on campus. But then when I saw what happened, it sort of solidified my own views. And basically, my thinking was whatever that is, I can't be associated with it. And that's turned me away from it. And I've heard similar stories from other students as well on, on campuses who come from more working class backgrounds who were maybe more, I mean, you know, maybe they they come from like families who voted for Democrats, they themselves were more sort of center, center left. And then they see what elite campus culture is like. And they're in this odd position. I mean, many of them were like, I can't bring myself to vote for Trump, but I can no longer identify as a Democrat was sort of a, a lot of a lot of what I was hearing. Mm, yeah. And so many people feeling politically homeless as well. Yeah. Where do you think this all goes from here in terms of the arc of the great awakening? Do you think we're getting to the end of this or do you think we're in the middle? <laughs> yeah, I just did this this panel, this discussion with uh, Musa Al-Garbi. He's a, he's a sociologist from Columbia. Had a good conversation with him and he says we're almost at the end. I hope he's right. I really don't know. I mean, one of the things that seems to be happening and I've noticed this is that like there is more of a reckoning with some of the stuff that's been going on with the awakening, like the New York Times, uh, they recently had that editorial about the importance of freedom of speech. And despite the outcry on Twitter and all of the ridiculing and so on, they didn't backtrack, they didn't retract it or anything. I'm not sure. I think if there is a sort of receding of the awakening, part of it seems to be that people don't have to worry about Trump anymore. So people who are on the left or the center left, I think there was this kind of like no enemies to the left idea because of Trump. So all of their energy and all of their focus had to be on getting that guy out of the White House. And, you know, they couldn't be seen sort of undermining their own team. But now that they don't have to worry about that anymore, about Trump, now that they can they can sort of turn turn on and address maybe some of the extreme sort of the extreme voices on their own side. That sort of seems to be where where things are going now. 
I don't know. I hope we're at the end, but I, I just, I guess, couldn't make a prediction. <laughs> Let's hope we're getting to the end of it. Well, listen, Rob, it's really great to get the chance to speak with you. Your newsletter is amazing. We will direct people to that and we'll be watching for that book. And uh, thank right. you for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Tara. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>